authentic, curated, woke, unapologetically black, dope, substantive, powerful, innovative, relevant, global, cultural, black excellence. That's my Quali TV. Our culture curated. All right, this is Chris Brothers Speed Podcast, where we talk to the innovative, the daring, and the bold, providing informative topics for the black LGBT. And I have a special guest today, and I'll be honest with you, I was very surprised when I discovered who created some of these films. Um, I actually went on Quale TV not that long ago, and of course, those who don't know Quale TV um, is actually an interactive streaming platform that shares the African diaspora experience through undiscovered documentaries, films, web shows, TV programs, children's news, etc. And I'm a lover of history. I'm a big lover of history, and I came across this particular film, and it was called Ain't Nobody's Business, A Queer Blues Divas of the 1920s. And I was very much so educated. I did not know, I did not know how far, um, well, we say LGBT now, but I'm pretty sure it was known as queer back then <laughs> in terms of how far reach and the influence that they had within the music industry at that particular time. And I was floored. I was really educated. I really enjoyed it. And I definitely want to make sure a lot of people were aware of that. So I had to reach out to the person who created this film and I came across a guy named Robert Phillipson. And it was not what I expected. It, was, it, was, it wound up being a guy who actually is Jewish, but also uh, who seemed to be a lover of the queer history uh, that definitely seems to be uh, put out there through his educational films, which his company is called Shoga Films. Am I correct in saying that? Shoga Films? Yes. Shoga Films. Yes. And uh, it definitely on his platform, it creates and disseminates multimedia works on race and sexuality that raises awareness and foster critical discussion. And uh, I got to be honest with you, I really enjoyed it. And I definitely I encourage everybody who definitely wants to learn more about the, the history, especially with queer history, uh, to check out this film, Tain Those Bodies Business, uh, Queer Blues Divas of the 1920s. How you doing, Mr. Phillipson? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, thanks for thanks for having me on the on the show. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I I didn't I looked at this and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is. This is some really good pieces of history that a lot of people probably don't know, probably didn't know at all. Uh, so I want to kind of swing the audience into, number one, how'd you get into this? Uh, what was your interest about it? And, and get people familiar with you and your work. I, uh, I've been making uh, multimedia pieces, mostly documentaries and some music videos, focusing mostly on the black LGBT experience um, I used to teach literature, and uh, my last teaching gig was at uh, Santa Clara University in California. I'm based in Oakland, California, and I was teaching a course in the Harlem Renaissance. So being queer myself, uh, my antenna's always up when I read about writers, critics, uh, what we call influencers today who are, uh, you know, who were gay or lesbian or bisexual. And I kept running into these tidbits 
during my research that this person was like Elaine Locke, who was the principal architect of the ideology of the new Negro during the Harlem Renaissance, was gay. Johnny Cullen, a well-known African-American poet, was gay. Um, and um, this uh, wasn't being taught as part of the curriculum, so I thought, this needs to, uh, this needs to get out there. Uh, when I transitioned into documentary filmmaking, this subject matter uh, was natural for me. I was already pretty well-versed in the history uh, of the Harlem Renaissance. And so uh, I started researching in greater depth uh, the topics that I would approach. And the reason that the blues came up early in this is because the blues is one of the few places in American culture where alternative sexuality was not only talked about in forthright terms, but sometimes even celebrated. So that was extremely unusual. And as I was doing research, uh, uh, some of the top names of that period, notably Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters, and Alberta Hutter, proved to be either bisexual or just straight-up lesbian. So uh, that led into the making of Queer Blues Divas of the 1920s. Now, now, just to make now a little bit that I learned from the film, during this particular, this is almost like the rock and roll at that time, at that time period. Pretty much all the, those who were considered to be the outcast from the church at that time was actually brought into and kind of, kind of they made their way into the blues at that time. Is that correct? You know, it was, a, it, it, it was a complicated scene. First of all, it was racially segregated, as everything was during, during that period. So uh, it was popular among the race and class, race and class. The blues was popular among the working class folks. Okay. It was scorned by the middle class, or what you boys called the talented tenth, um, and of course abhorred by the good church-going people. Oh. So that section of the population that uh, uh, loved the blues, really loved the blues, in fact, one of the things that really uh, propelled propelled the the uh, early recording industry and made um, uh, whatever what became recording uh, companies convinced that they could make money off of what was then called race music was uh, one of the first recordings uh, of blues by black blues singers by the name of Mamie Smith, and she recorded a um, crazy blues in uh, 1919 or something like that. It was quite early, yeah. and it was huge. It was a big success. So um, from then on, uh, some companies, most notably OK uh, Paramount, uh, went out, found blues singers, and recorded them, and had uh, had a lot of success with that. But they were marketed as uh, race records and were largely unknown to the white public. So is it is it safe to say that the first wave of artists, um, a good portion of them were queer? Um, you know, it's surprising how many of them were. Um, but uh, among the first string, you know, the people that I mentioned were, um, they, 
it's surprising how many of the prominent names, you know, the ones I picked off were. Uh, but there were a raft of second and third string artists who were uh, who were who were straight. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say majority, but among this uh, first generation of of uh, blues divas, yeah, there were definitely definitely some uh, some big names. Um, but this was not, you know, they certainly didn't advertise themselves as queer. This was this was not uh, generally known about them, and they it was not something that, with the exception of Gladys Bentley, and we can talk about her later, this was not something that they they put forward. Being perceived as a uh, uh, lesbian or a bull diker, as uh, they were known, for, uh, you know, from the slang, was uh, potentially dangerous. Uh, homosexuality was. Was uh, primarily viewed through the discourses of criminality or uh, mental illness. Absolutely, there was no, there was uh, no, not even a nascent gay liberation movement at the time. It was remarkable that there was a space. There was as much of a space as there was during the Harlem Renaissance for a semi-public presence of same-sex activity, um, which got shut down during the 30s and 40s. Um, but uh, that was pretty much the exception uh, when uh, when uh, mainstream culture took notice of homosexuality, started to lock them up or put them in mental institutions. So during this particular time, and they really spoke differently in their music. What's this, I'm just curious, was it something when it comes to their lyrics that they actually wrote? Was it something that people didn't quite get until later through the years, later in life, or they kind of knew exactly where they were coming from at that time in their in their music? Well, there's always a there's there's actually kind of a ro- a robust tradition of of dirty blues, um, and uh, uh, <laughs> as an example, Ma Rainey had a hit with a with a, a song called "Shave 'Em Dry." And when you listen to the lyrics, you don't know what shave and dry is referring to. You can't quite, it sounds nonsensical, but what shave and dry referred to was uh, penetration, you know, basically sudden penetration without any, you know, without any foreplay. Oh. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, there's a very famous song that a number of uh, blues singers did called My Handyman. Okay. Which you should you you should listen to, you know. And the lyrics go, uh, "He shakes my tree. He and you know he cleans my oven. He shakes the ashes. Um, and it's and, and it's it's just dripping with sexual in, innuendo. <laughs> so you know there was lots and lots of double entendre, lots and lots of double entendres going on at the time. Wow. Um, as far as Veiled references to uh, homosexuality—they uh, weren't so veiled. The very fact that they were mentioned at all was was was, was exceptional. Right. Um, and oftentimes the lyrics were were humorous. Um, there's a uh, there's a song called uh, "Sissy Blues" that Ma Rainey recorded. Yeah. In which she talks about uh, woke up this morning, a man was gone. A sissy shook a thing and took that man from home. You know, so um, you know I don't have to tell you what "shake that thing" means. <laughs> right, right. And in right. fact, Ethel Waters had a big hit with that very song, with the song 
entitled to take that thing. Gotcha. That mainstream critics shook their heads and said, "This is this is the end of American culture as we know it." You know. Oh wow. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, no. When it came down to the popularity, now the the popularity, it was pretty much did it stay just within the the working class uh, uh, color section, or did it eventually start to? When did it actually eventually start to branch into other areas other than just considered to be black music at the time? Bessie Smith was a real crossover hit. She uh, she was she was known. Uh, to uh, to uh, what we would now refer to as woke white people in New York, and she performed in New York. Uh, but Ma Rainey, for example, she never performed in New York. Really? No. Mm-mm. That's no. surprising. She, okay. I, not really. I mean, the blues came up from the blues came up Mississippi River. The big uh, the big the home of the blues was. Uh, you know, Mississippi River in Chicago. Gotcha. Uh, didn't go, didn't go east of that. Now, uh, definitely some of the names we already are aware of. We seem to be much more aware of Ma Rainey, especially during uh, which Queen Latifah also on her HBO special uh, made very popular, which she also received an award for. Uh, what are other some other names that were mentioned that a lot of people just don't know? Depends on how. How into blues and blues history uh, members of your audience might be. Um, best known as Bessie Smith, as you mentioned. Uh, there was an HBO uh, movie uh, directed by uh, the uh, black queer director Dee Reese. Yes. And um, Alberta Hunter was well known in her day. Uh, something suffered something of an eclipse. Uh, in the 50s and then had a roaring comeback when she was in her 80s um, in New York uh, sang at the Knitting Factory and uh, I've been told that uh, part of her comeback was um, uh, lesbians who cheered her on with part of her audience and talked her up so she was she was well known by the time she died Ethel Waters had a Huge career, huge career. There's, she's got a star on on Broadway. Sorry, not Broadway. Hollywood Boulevard, the Walk of Fame. She um, she uh, was a star both on Broadway and in Hollywood. Um, to the extent that a black woman could be a star, she had some she had some big roles. Gotcha. Um, and so she was quite well known when she died. Um, this is all ancient history at this point. You know, anybody who was singing during the 1920s, if they lived until 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 the 1980s, was, was were doing pretty well. And you know, how many years have we from that? 40, 50 years. So, you know, I don't I don't know what, to what extent their reputations have remained. Gotcha. Good. Well, you know, the, the thing about this, are, are you discovering, especially through films like yours? and other films that are being uh, pushed out there, that people are getting a little bit more educated in this crossing different generations in terms of understanding how far uh, queer and LGBT uh, people really made their mark in history? Um, I really can't speak for what uh, the millennial generation. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm way beyond that. Okay. <laughs> I can't speak for what they know and don't know. Um, my... 
this knowledge, you know, has been out there in a piecemeal fashion okay. for some time, but unless you have a special interest in um, researching it, um, I don't know that it's common knowledge. I mean, Say Nobody's Business came out in 2010, so it's been around for seven years, and when you discovered it, this was all new to you, right? It, absolutely. Hey, hey, but see, I, I'm also in the X generation. And and, the, and I'm not. I'm probably but, but millennials. Well, they're right after me. I'm in my. I'm 41. But you know, the thing about it is, the, it just a, being a lover of history and always knowing, just knowing exactly, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that in terms of mm-hmm. queer history is something, mm-hmm. or just history in general, is just something mm-hmm. that I would think that these films, uh, for those who are just wanting to know, uh, is probably going a little bit further than what some people originally thought that their films or their music would go in terms of different generations and kind of keeping that alive. So I didn't know whether or not that you, you seem to be seeing your work crossing in different generations uh, like minds and, and younger. Well, I hope so. There really, there really isn't that much out there that's, that's promoting this knowledge. There's, right. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's the HBO film Bessie, which we've mentioned already, and there's my film. There's a there was a feature film that came out in 1996 or eight called Brother to Brother by the director Rodney Evans, which uh, takes on the queer Harlem Renaissance as, as part of its subject matter. Other than that, I can't think of anything. Wow! So it's still it's still a lot of work to be done. Basically, a lot of seems like uh, not a whole lot of information. Uh, or or uh, his history and documentaries are being pushed in regards to that. Is there a particular reason why? Mm, no, I can't really speculate as to why there. You know, there 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 hasn't been more documentaries made about the subject matter. I mean, uh, I would I, think only because I was, I'm think the reason why I'm asking that is because I'm thinking if you know the queer you know, community in itself is looking to push further. Uh, to make you know, in terms of the contribution to the world, uh, that would probably be something that would be would be pushed or marketed. Uh, well, there's a lot of excavation to be done, and there's all kinds of historical characters that are being brought to light now. Just to keep it within the black framework, you know, there was a documentary about Bayard Rustin, Brother Outsider, um, you know, uh, other filmic representations of people who participated in the Stonewall riots. I mean, this stuff is coming to light. Um, the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, that's that's my particular hoe that I'm rowing. I've been doing it for um, a number of years now, and as far as I know, and I've gone to a lot of film festivals, as far as I know, I'm still the only person working in this area. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Okay, okay. Well, that's well, that says something very, very much about you. Now, how did you get into into this particular segment of understanding or bringing out their queer history and that aspect? What made you become interested in this? Well, I mean, the Harlem Renaissance is a fascinating period. It's really fun. And kind of the black version of the lost generation, you know, Paris in the 20s with Hemingway and Fitzgerald. You know, you had really talented people living these really interesting lifestyles. Everybody was having sex with everybody else. Everybody gossiping about everybody else. And some people were producing masterpieces. Well, it was the same thing in the Harlem Renaissance. You know? 
and it wasn't just literature. Theater, dance, it was uh, visual arts, and uh, it's just a really fun and fascinating period. So, I mean, the best part of of, of the project has been the research. It's been just been just been great. Uh, in fact, I'm currently working on a full-length, feature-length documentary called Mood Lavender, which will take us all on, Queers in the Harlem Renaissance. And one of the things that, you know, the thesis that has been around in academia, but I, I want to push it out into the, into the world at large, is that queer sensibility wasn't just that queers participated in the Harlem Renaissance, because, you know, you find an overrepresentation of queers in any artistic movement. Uh, but it, queer sensibility shaped the Harlem Renaissance. Really? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to give you an example, um, the so-called dean of the Harlem Renaissance uh, was a, uh, a philosophy professor. He was boss professor at Howard University by the name of Elaine Locke. And he was asked to edit an anthology of uh, new writing that would present the what was then called the Negro Renaissance to the public at large, um, which, and uh, he he was very gay, and he was um, uh, you know he kept pursuing young men. Okay, uh, he was somewhat older himself, and part of the way he framed that was through he you know he's well well versed in the classics. He was the first Rhodes Scholar, first black Rhodes Scholar in American history. He'd spent time in Oxford in Germany and when he was and studying the classics and of course the classical ideal was um, the older uh, the older man uh, taking a younger man under his wing and buggering him in the process. And educating him so that the younger man would be a good citizen and a good artist. And he very much subscribed to this philosophy, you know, in uh, in his pursuit of younger men and uh, his attempted seduction of younger men. Sometimes successful, sometimes not. So when he was asked to um, present an overview of the Harlem Renaissance, he, he introduced a new idea, which was that of the younger generation. Nobody talked about black terms of generational differences before. He was the first one to do it. And he was also the first one to say the younger generation is the new Negro. This is this is this is where uh, this is where Negroes as as agents, not as um, subject you know, they're not sociological problems, they're not victims of history, they're 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 artists uh, and actors with uh, full humanity and desires and abilities to express themselves. And he put that on the younger generation. Very much coming directly out of his queer sensibility. That's just one example. There are many others as well. So it's really exciting for me to um, to delve into this and to, and to bring this forth. Now, you, you, your work also, you have several films that a lot of people... Uh, definitely want to make sure I showcase here. Let me just take you back. Of course, we talked about Take Nobody's Business, Take the Gay Train, The Blacks of Their Eyes, The Lives of Lamont Atkins, Body and Soul, American Bridge. And so it, it sounds like, how many years have you been doing this? Uh, about a dozen years. 
the true purpose of you doing it to really bring more attention to the Harlem Renaissance and particularly the queer aspect? No, I mean that's 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 really too narrow. I mean some of the films have specifically dealt with the Harlem Renaissance. Okay. Um, take, um, but uh, the um, the life of Lamont Atkins is uh, is about a uh, is a t- about a contemporary guy who uh, was a uh, black yoga instructor who played football with Stanford, had a career as a performer, singer, uh, model in Europe, and then came to San Francisco. Really struggled with his uh, homosexuality and finally came out when he came to San Francisco. So, just followed his story. It was an interesting story. I, I wanted to uh, to document that. Okay. Um, and uh, the blacks of their eyes. Oh Lord, we're going to open a can of worms here. Well, that's what podcasts <laughs> <will> do. <laughs> okay, the blacks of their eyes. It's okay. Um, you know, people. Identity politics is obviously important to any sort of discourse of of uh, 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 ethnic reclamation or exploration. You know, who get who has the right to speak about what? You know, well, I'm a white guy or I'm a Jewish guy, and I'm making films about the black LGBT experience. Now I'm queer myself, so I have that, but I don't have the black. It's not a subjective and lived experience. So, you know, that can cause people to raise an eyebrow. Why are you doing this? How can you present this in a way that uh, is, uh, you know, uh, that is fair, gives it its, you know, gives it its its full humanity? Um, those are legitimate questions. And uh, I must say, I, I haven't been challenged as a documentary filmmaker uh, uh, doing films on these subjects very much. That's happened from time to time, but uh, the uh, the end products speak for themselves, and most people really like what I'm doing. The vast majority of people see that this is, you know, these are uh, well-informed, well-executed documentaries. You know, how can you complain about that? Of course. But, you know, I was, I was, you know, I've been challenged along the way to make a documentary that, you know, that reflects my own subjective experience. And um, so I made a documentary about white guys who are into black guys. And that's what the whites, that's what the blacks of their eyes are about. You know, it's kind of funny because I, um, I'm going to be having a conversation with a well-known adult entertainment uh, director. Um, uh, this coming weekend because it's also to just kind of talk a little bit we're going to touch on it I should say on that particular subject as well so so no is is definitely going to so you know it's a subject that a lot of us are much more much aware of but it's definitely a subject that honestly it is discussed within the community so why not discuss it and put it out there on the film now you also say take the gay train what is that about those are kind of like uh, those are kind of like early attempts. So Mood Lavender uh, is going to, as a documentary, it's going to incorporate um, adaptations of uh, text, poems, um, experiences of uh, black queers in the Harlem Renaissance, and put them and and put them on the screen. So. Um, 
I currently have a film on the film festival circuit, a short called Congo Cabaret. Congo Cabaret is an adaptation of a scene from a novel called Home to Harlem by Claude McKay that was published in 1928. It was actually the first uh, bestseller that was written by uh, a black author. Oh, wow. Um, and one, uh, Claude McKay is of Jamaican origin, but lived in the United States for about 20 years during that. And he wrote uh, this novel. Because he's gay himself, he actually depicted some of the gay and lesbian subculture in the Harlem Renaissance in his novel. And uh, most you know, specifically, Congo Cabaret, which is owned by uh, a masculine gay guy called Billy the Wolf. Wolf was Harlem slang for a masculine gay man at the time. Um, so I adapted that. I adapted that. I hired a uh, uh, black queer directing producing couple by the name of Quincy and DeAndre Gosfield uh, in Hollywood to direct the piece as a short fiction film. Okay. They did a fantastic job of it. And that's going to be incorporated into uh, Mood Lavender. Take the Gay Train is uh, earlier adaptation of uh, other pieces that I did myself. Okay. And it was doing those adaptations that I realized that um, directing films that require hair, makeup, uh, scenery, uh, working with actors, uh, is just a whole different skill set than what I had as a documentary filmmaker, and one that you can't acquire overnight. So, um, I just... Um, so... I, it's out there, you know, take the gay train, uh, but hopefully uh, nobody's ever going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, I, I definitely want my audience to definitely be aware of what information is out there and provide them at least that option to be able to check it out, at least to gain this sort of, of history that a lot of them really don't know. Again, not not saying that everyone's a, a big history buff and kind of kind of thirst for that like myself, uh, but also uh, and also you because also you you're putting yourself in, in developing the films to push uh, that information out there. But it is to say that it provides an option. Now, when you put your your films on quality TV, how did that come about? So I there there are a bunch of. There are a bunch of uh, what they call video on demand platforms out there. Yes. Early TV is one of them that's that's uh, that's black oriented, but there are others as well. Uh, IndieFlix is one that was is gaining in prominence prominence um, at film festivals. The representatives will come to me and say we're interested in acquiring your film. And, uh, so uh, that's that's how that happened. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. definitely that that was a. Uh... A good way, I, you know, since I'm also part of that as well, I could be able to at least look at the films that interest me, and that's one of the reasons why I definitely contact you. I want to kind of make sure people are aware of this uh, being out there. Now, right now, of course, Moon Lavender uh, is one of the projects currently underway. Is there any other things, you, any other projects you have in, uh, that's going to be, I think you, you already mentioned one already as well. Any other um, pl projects you plan on uh, putting out there in the near future next year or, or years to come? 
Well, before I get into that, let me let me give a plug for Kanabody's business. You know, if anybody wants to see it, and they're not part of Quelly TV, you can download it, rent it, or download it from from Vimeo. And I'm I think if you just put the um, uh, if you just Google the title, it'll it'll take you to the to the download page. So um, it's it's easily available. If you want the DVD with bonus tracks of performances of some queer content, songs from the period, and videos based on those, you can order those from my website, which is uh, shogafilms.com. So, um, uh, so there are definitely ways of, of uh, watching Kanebody's business. Awesome, awesome. In terms of what I'm working on, Mood Lavender is pretty all-consuming. It's a, it's a very ambitious project. It's going to be either 90 minutes or maybe even two hours. Oh, wow. All of a done. There's a lot of material there to cover. And, uh, you know, uh, it, not only will I be making the film, but I'm going to have to raise money for it. And that's um, really the first time that I've... Uh, set myself the goal of going out and raising some serious money for, for, okay. for one of my films. So, yet another learning curve. You know, listen, if we don't put ourselves out there, we're never really learned. You know? <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, I've also had previous directors who've also uh, put themselves out there in that way uh, to gain um, support from the just the community in, in particular, just people who love um, art in itself. So, I've had some directors do that, and some of them have some great success. So, uh, so good luck with that with that aspect as well. And you know, thank I'll, you. You know, so I definitely want to make sure people at least give the opportunity. And of course, I will be giving all of your information um, right under all directly direct, uh, underneath uh, on the platform, I should say, on this particular podcast. So everybody can just simply take a, a mere click and just go directly to your information and go directly to your website to learn a little more about the films and also learn more about you and purchase if they wish to as well. So I definitely, definitely do appreciate you taking the time out to just talk to me for a little bit here about this film because like I said, I love history and this definitely kind of raised my eyebrow a little bit. So Keep doing what you're doing and uh, educating us more. I love what you're doing so far. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to get the message out there. All right, all right. Well, this is Chris from Bugsby Podcast signing off with Mr. Robert Phillipson. You guys have a wonderful day. Okay, bye-bye.